Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jerry McGinn, who is the Executive Director of the Greg and Camille Baroni Center for Government Contracting in the Costello College of Business in, at George Mason University. He is a trusted strategic advisor and board member with expertise in U.S. industrial policy, security cooperation, supply chain, industrial security, expert control for military sales, and industrial-based policies. Prior to joining George Mason University, he served as a senior career official in the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy in the Department of Defense. Before DOD, spent a decade in senior defense industry roles for several various organizations. Before industry, serving DOD as a special assistant to principal deputy undersecretary of policy and as a political scientist at RAND. Lastly, Dr. McGann is a veteran of the U.S. Army, previously serving as an infantry officer. All right, sir. Hey, hey. Thanks for being on on the podcast. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of of your work. You know, you've you've been on quite a few other forums and, and podcasts, and and you've pu- published a, a lot of great articles on on the defense industrial base, PPBE, the acquisitions. And so, I'm excited to spend some time time with you on this you know Sunday afternoon and talk to you about you know these areas specifically on the health of our defense industrial base. So that being said, sir, before we dive into these questions. Um, uh, I'll defer to you for, for any opening comments. No, it's great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for very much for reaching out and for for having a podcast, you know, focusing on your was your is your FA fifty? Is that right? You guys, uh, your force management uh, uh, functional area and stuff like that. So it's great to um, um, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. So on the defense industrial base and in the policy. I was just curious, you know, what is your overall assessment of the defense industrial base? And, you know, if, you know, God forbid, you know, we have to go to war, is our current state of the defense industrial base, is it, is it ready for, for conflict today? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think the, I think COVID and uh, Ukraine and um, have shown kind of our industrial base is what it is. It's, it's something that was optimized for, peacetime operations um in uh, particularly since the end of the cold war uh and it's bit built on a just-in-time model to have just enough equipment to meet our specific contingencies uh but it is it is quite brittle in the sense that uh, we don't have enough capacity um to uh, to respond to crises um and to surge um when we need to um so and that's a lot of the reason why uh, the current administration drafted this national defense industrial strategy, which we'll be talking about. But uh, so I think we, we have the most capable industrial base in the world. Uh, we build the best equipment um, on the globe, but it is um, it is quite um, uh, brittle in its current nature. Yeah, yes, sir. I think back in the '90s there was some strategic decisions, you know, the, the last supper, which, you know, consolidated some of our defense industrial base. Um, and, you know, we're going through some of the implications of, of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies, you know, uh, you know, open source material that are out on the war games, uh, you know, against, against China or, or Russia, you know, that, that show us that, um, you know, we don't have the magazine depth. We don't have the capacity to endure, in conflict, which which is a big problem, um, and there's there's a good article that's out there. I, I think a couple of years ago, uh, published by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amos Fox, where he he addressed some of these issues. Where we identified this back in like 2015, 16 ish with the the siege on Mosul, where you know the Air Force you know ran ran short on 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 PGMs. So 
it's just interesting how you know things things you know revolve in you know in in a circle so yeah this is not um this is not a uh i mean ukraine and covid put a kind of a sharp light on it but this is not a uh new new challenge um and um but it's now it's just a recognition that you know this this uh this can't continue Yes, sir. And and not to put words in your mouth, sir, but I'm just wondering, you know, would you agree that, you know, multiple lines of production are absolutely essential for for crisis instead of just just one for a capability? We need we need we need more. Right. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, as you say, I mean, uh, unclassified summaries of war games that showed that basically we're we're out of war, um, uh, out of planes, out of missiles in one or two weeks in a major contingency, you know, and we just we're not cranking them out in a kind of. Um, you know, uh, fast kind of uh, manner. And so it, 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 uh, uh, our capacity in the industrial base is not where it needs to be for major contingency. Now, um, you know, and this is not to beat up on industry or government, you know, you know, it just, it is what it is, right? And um, we can't, um, the challenge is, is that in order for us to have the capacity we need, you have to sort of recognize that you have to fund for it you have to build production lines for it as you say uh, and we just have not done that um we are starting to get there for um for some areas in you know pgms with respect to uh um, our 155 uh, artillery shells uh in with respect to ukraine but even that's not going to happen right away um and uh the challenge is how do we sustain it because it, it's not it's not a big it's it's a big lift to do it and then but to sustain it also is a big lift because as you talked in the front in the outset, um, the last supper, you know, was a recognition at the end of the cold war that, you know, what, you know, the, the cold war is over. And so we went from spending five and a half percent of our GDP on defense to spending 3%. And we ain't, we ain't going back to five and a half percent. We're just, I mean, cause that would be, you know, a, a, you know, a better part of $2 trillion on defense. And, you know, there's just not the will to do that or the perceived threat. So, um, how, but how can you get towards that kind of level of production uh, with more modest increases? And that's sort of, that's been the focus of kind of my writing and work and um, what some others are doing. Yes, sir. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, with, you know, like the, the, the Stinger missiles, you know, I think we stopped production back in like 2003, four five, somewhere around there. Um, but once you, once you stop production, it's, it's hard to get that production line back and going. And then the experience that, that goes with it. So if you have folks that are, you know, they're the subject matter experts, right? They're used to building that sort of capability, but then they go and, you know, they, they retire, right? There, there goes that experience, but then the demand signal, you know, comes back around. It, it's hard to, it's hard to get that. It's hard to re reacquire that. And I think COVID was also like a good forcing function for, you know, folks in the industrial base, maybe to, you know, to retire and, and, and that. So I think, you know, I know the military is having their own manning challenges. I'm sure the defense industrial base in itself, you know, is, is having many yeah. cha challenges. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And this is stuff that, um, uh, again, it's not a new problem. Um, and some of it is, some of it is how we produce things, um, and um, uh, you know, like the Stinger is essentially handmade missile. You know, it's it's handcrafted, mm -hmm. a lot of human touch, a lot of customized parts, uh, and um, you know, and they the technical data package or the TDPs for those 
you know, were just regular drawings. And, you know, so if you had, if you had designed the system a bit more simply in terms of um, more common parts, um, more automation, if you had um, uh, electronic technical data packages uh, of those there, you know, you it could be arguably kind of less expensive to maintain or restart the production of, the, of that kind of system if you did it that on the front end. And so that that's kind of the things that need to happen today is we have to try and design um, and our systems for producibility and for sustainability. So, you know, and that means kind of um, produce them as simple as possible. So you just got the capability you need, but you can produce it. Um, uh, and, and, and if you need to kind of pause production, you've got the technical data packages to restart and so on. So it's not as reliant on, you know, the, the hand, the skills of, you know, people that retired five years ago, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. that's the challenges you're seeing with Stinger. And, um, the, the, the open question is, can we do that in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I, I want to. Get, we, we already mentioned it, the National Defense Industrial Strategy, you know, came out a couple weeks ago. I want to get your thoughts on uh, on that. Um, you know, specifically, you know, so there's four major themes, right? There's the flexible acquisitions, there's, there's the workforce readiness, economic deterrence, and resilient supply chain. Flexible acquisitions, you know, I was just wondering, what, what does that look like? You know, what does that mean? And then overall, your thoughts on the strategy. Do you think it's going to increase speed and scale of, of capabilities or your thoughts, sir? Yeah. So I, mean, I guess I'll start with the first, with the second question, you know, I mean, I think the strategy is a great call to action, you know, and um, it does a good job of, of, of reinforcing a lot of things that have happened or are happening. Um, stuff that I worked on in government when I was in government um, uh, and uh, stuff that has been proceeding for several years. Um, and, you know, it brings it all together, puts it under a good framework and establishes kind of an azimuth for the future uh, and along, along the four lines that you mentioned. And um, I think that, I think that's great. I mean, uh, the key will be how it's implemented. Um, and as I argued in my piece a couple of weeks ago in Breaking Defense, the, uh, the key I think is, um, is the Agile Acquisitions kind of um, uh, path um, or thrust because um, there's a lot um, that the department can do um, with its acquisition practices and its contracting practices and its budgeting practices that can help get to those, that objective that you outlined of more speed and producibility. Because, uh, you know, it, it, it's not, it, you know, it's just we're not there today, um, um, but there's a lot that the department can do on its own without, without additional resources to, to address that. I mean, resources are going to help, but that, that was kind of, that sort of, my view is that the the most important thrust is that, um, and um, that they need to to get moving. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, so just to just to be fair, you know, I've read, I haven't deep dive into the strategy myself. It's on my you know to do list. I've read a lot of the the commentary about it, and I, I'm not saying that this 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 is the strategy, right? But uh, you know, my thoughts are when I see see the word strategy, I take it with a grain of salt, because people throw strategy on there and it actually turns out to be like a, a grocery grocery list of like, you know, a lot of means 
or a lot of ends, you know, and not really tie in the ends, ways and means, you know, hey, there's a lot of capabilities I want to buy, or these are things that I want to achieve, but they're not really tying everything together. And there's no like theory of, of success here. So I'm just, you know, on the strategy, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, because we do have a lot of challenges, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hope that it, you know, does, you know, help, you know, alleviate some of the challenges that we do have. Um, moving on to some of the, I guess, current political feelings, I guess, in the, in the atmosphere, kind of like economic nationalism type, type sentiment, you know, it's kind of like history's kind of repeating itself a little bit. Um, going back to like the twenties and thirties, like I'm talking like, like protectionism, um, and this buy American initiatives kind of, you know, kind of like an effort, kind of the, you know, make America great again. You know, what are your thoughts on, on this buy American initiatives? Is it, is, do you see problems and challenges with it or, or, or no? Yeah. I mean, it, it, like you say, this is not a new kind of issue. And, and I think, uh, and there's a lot of it that's goodness. I mean, the, um, you know, the, there are laws in the books, um, the Buy America provisions have been in, been in law for 50 plus years, and they're about spurring more domestic production. Uh, and, mm-hmm. um, and that's a good thing. You know, um, it, uh, it is, uh, you know, you want to produce kind of uh, more of our systems here. Um, and, and COVID has shown that, like, you know, if you don't have enough control over your supply chains or you know you find that holy crap the one place we can get batteries from or rare earths process rare earths materials are from china which is not mm-hmm. where we want to be right even though it's not an end product so it's it's uh it's it's a bit different but it's it's nonetheless the same kind of challenge so i mean i think the inherent need for kind of more domestic production is 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 is, is, is in that security is um you know self-evident but we can take it, it gets taken too far. And it, it's, I mean, I've written on this a bunch where there's sort of a buy America only sentiment where you sort of, where you can only buy from, you know, um, you know, US producers. And that's been attempted um, by numerous um, um, con- legislative initiatives. Um, and frankly, you know, um, administrations have had a, a buy America. I mean, this administration has a current, uh, a buy America office uh, in, the, in the Office of Federal Management and Budget. Um, and the previous administration also had a big buy, buy America focus, which sort of sends, you know, you know, kind of mixed signals because at the same time they say buy America, they want allies and partners to come to war with us. We want to, um, yeah. and, and we want to yeah. operate together. So you, you can't, you got to square that circle to use the title of your title of your podcast. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got to, um, uh, you got to be real. And, and the fact that matters is we go to war with certain countries all the time we're always go to war as a coalition um and and it's you know it's the same players it's our nato allies particularly and a few others so the australians uh the brits um in almost every scenario and a few others so you know partnering with them and and those are those are uh, companies that are from those countries are surprise surprise that one have that have u.s subsidiaries that do a lot of classified work for the u.s you know Bradley is fighting vehicles built by BA Systems, which is a UK headquarter mm-hmm. company. You know, there's you know countless examples. The Navy's the new frigate program is being built by an Italian company, Fincantari Merchant Marine. They're and they're building it in Wisconsin. You know, they're building it in the Great Lakes. So I mean, so this this is already happening. The F-35 is the largest fighter program in in history, largest program in history, and that's being built in ten countries with thirty-five thousand uh, suppliers. 
uh, and it's being bought by, I don't know, 15 partners. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it is a fact um, of life and it's a good thing because we, we, we go to war together um, and our industrial bases are very intertwined. Um, um, and this is, you know, only in the free market. So, you know, I, I think the more you do these kind of buy America, set these artificial kind of thresholds, the more it kind of undermines that. And so you got to be very careful on that. Yeah, yes, sir. And kind of jumping ahead on um, one of the questions that I wanted to get your your, your thoughts on the, you know, the F-35. I think one of the things that, you know, because it's being used by multiple different countries, a lot of countries want that capability, you know, that, that helps with interoperability. Um, has the F-35, it, is there any lessons, anything that it's, you know, additionally that's taught? taught user like anything yeah. that you know comes to mind on that yeah, yeah no i did i did a report last year i called build allied uh, which was about how do you increase overall global industrial capacity and by working with our partners and allies um and um and in that i did look at nine nine cases nice case studies and one of them was f-35 um and you know the f-35 that's like i said the largest program in history uh, it's very complex when you have a lot of different partners involved um and, but, you know, but it's very sticky, though, in the sense that once you get all these companies and countries invested, it's very hard to kill, you know, so and so it's, mm. it's something that is good. I mean, we Turkey was kicked out of the program, the F-35. Um, the Canadians almost left. You know, it didn't really have any impact, you know, uh, you know, that caused turbulence in production because of Turkey. There was a lot of production that happened there. Um, but the, um, you know, having having the the large buy in. It creates economies of scale. It creates stickiness in terms of you know the program kind of uh, is used um, and has longevity. Uh, you know the sustainment of, of the program becomes easier because in the case of F thirty five, you know you've got your final assembly and checkout facilities not only in Fort Worth, Texas, but you have them in Japan and you have them in Italy. So you know you've mm -hmm. got kind of this this global nature and. And if we go to war in East Asia, having a sustainment center in Japan ain't a bad thing. So, you know, so it's just, you know, so uh, I think it's a great example of the, the power of um, international industrial collaboration. Now, it's hard um, and we need to do things to make it uh, less hard. Uh, and I lay out some of those in my report, but um, I, I think it's, it's overall kind of a very much a net positive for the U.S. and for you know all of us and our allies. Yeah, yes, sir. As for allies and partners, I, I me personally, I think it's okay. And this this following question is going to tie into the uh, the the MRAP uh, question that yeah. I you know I really want to get your thoughts on later on, but. Personally, I think, you know, tapping into allies and partners and, and their capabilities, if there's a mature, mature technology out there, you know, why not? Like, you know, the, the Iron Dome, right? But there's, you know, there's there's thoughts out there that are, eh, you know, hesitant, hesitant towards that. So, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, buying specific made in X country capabilities? You know, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Like the, the Iron Dome, sir, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, the... Um... You know, I think you're going to do, you know, um, it sort of depends on the program, depends on the need. Uh, you know, I think um, in the in the case of the MRAP, um, MRAP, the, the thing that was one of the, you know, the things that made it so um, deployed so fast is, is that, you know, the Secretary of the Gates, um, the Secretary of Defense at the time, they basically said, you know, let's use existing for, largely foreign designs 
um, which meant you didn't have to go to, you know, they very, had very simple requirements. Um, you had existing designs, and so they just wanted something that was good enough to protect soldiers and get it produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so that was, I thought, you know, when you get, when you have 14,000 produced in, in less than less than three years from, from before RFP to um, deployment, that's effing amazing. Um, and that was because they used an existing foreign design. So I think, you know, you have to sort of get over yourself in terms of, you know, it doesn't always have to be embedded here. Um, and it sort of depends on the scenario. Um, and I, I'm not as familiar with Iron Dome. So, I mean, it could be that that was a very similar kind of determination, but, you know, um, um, partnering, I mean, but, you know, but it, that being said, there, it is, I think it's harder to um, collaborate uh, on the R&D side, on the development side, because of, you know, some of the advanced technologies and, and um, uh, you know, the uncertainty of where you, where the use cases are and so on. So, but the, uh, um, but being open to it, it's really important in my view. Yeah. On the, uh, the MRAP, um, I, I think it's an absolutely fa- fascinating, you know, case study. Um, you know, I was in, I was in Iraq towards like the, the tail end of kind of the, the, the fieldings of the, uh, different variants, you know, the Caymans and the Max Pros and all that coming coming to Iraq to, uh, you know, replace the, the Humvees. And, you know, I think SecDef uh, Gates, his, you know, kind of paraphrasing was like, you know, the, the troops are in combat, but the Pentagon is not, you know, and he's, you know, pushing forward for, you know, getting, getting this, this capability fielded to the, to the soldiers to, you know, basically protect, save, save lives. Um, but the, you know, the joint staff, you know, was looking towards the, the future, wanted to budget for, for, for other things. Um, so, I think it's a phenomenal case study, and I and I really like how you highlighted it in your your uh, you know recent article article, yeah. sir. Um, yeah, I know. I think, so, yeah, yep. No, go ahead, sir. I was going to say. I mean, I that's what I was arguing, you know, about the national defense industrial strategy. I was like, you know, I think we sort of have to take an MRAP mindset in how we do acquisition. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I kind of go through it, like you say, a bunch of different ways, and like how we design systems. Um, and kind of to limit requirements, you know, to make them as simple as possible, use existing designs, um, you know, and so and make them focus on producibility uh, and, you know, and then how we contract, you know, contracting so that you can surge faster um, by putting it in the contract. Um, and, you know, and then how budgeting, this is why, you know, this is another topic, but how we, why PPP reform is so essential. So. So I'm like, yeah. like you say that I mean, Gates's point is like, listen, you know, you know, the Pentagon is not a war, and we're at war. Our soldiers are dying. We we had to kind of flip the script on how we produ- uh, developed and produced that system, and I think we need to do that on a whole range of um, efforts in order we're going to get the industrial base that we need um, to, for the contingencies facing us in in the coming months. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, moving on to like multi-year uh, contracts, I think the answer is yes, but you know, I want want your thoughts on this. So, you know, funding for multi-year contracts does that strong that does that send a strong a uh, signal, build confidence in our defense industrial base and production lines? You know, what are your what are your thoughts on multi-year contracts, sir? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that you, you is really really critical to understand in this uh in in this market is that industry is only incentivized to do what is in the four corners of the contract it, it just is what it is right so uh you know saying to industry you should build extra production 
capacity, you know, it, it, it is, is, is fanciful because uh, companies can't build capacity they're not going to use, um, particularly for things, you know, like M55 ammunition or so on. There's only one market. There's only one kind of customer for that. So if they start building excess capacity, their shareholders will kill them. Um, and, um, and, and so it, it's just a peculiarity of this monopsony, the monopsonistic market that we have. Uh, and so if you, we want, if you want companies to produce more, um, uh, uh, then uh, they need a clear market signal and the market signal is a contract. So multi-year procurement is really important because it helps kind of give them that demand signal. Because if you look, we've done some analysis of um, munitions production uh, over the you know past in recent past, and the, the way it goes, it pitches and yaws and goes up and down and up and mm -hmm. down from year to year, month to month even, uh, it really creates problems for for the government program manager as well as for the for the producer, and so. Um, 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 so not, so having more stability through a multi-year kind of contract is really, really kind of, um, important way to address that challenge. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, moving on to the replicator initiative, kind of, you know, curious to get your thoughts on, on this. So, you know, I've read a lot of, uh, you know, various, you know, criticisms going towards that. Um, do you see success down the road for this initiative or are there like too many unknowns at this time? I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, because so much of this is in the classified space that they're not, you know, really saying much, and you know, it's, it's probably appropriate. Um, but I think a lot of the criticism of um, Replicator, I, I think, is sort of misplaced because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is um, uh, a lot of people that are complaining are folks that really want, you know, some, you know, they want a program that they can map out for the next four years. But what, what Replicator is trying to do is produce now, you know, it's trying to accelerate production using commercially available equipment. Uh, and I think that's a good thing for the department to really focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and they're they're doing it as fast as they can. I mean, is it as fast as we'd like? No. But so I, I, I you know, I think it's too early to say, but but I do think that it, it, it very much fits with what I think is the right approach, which is kind of getting more towards agile acquisition focusing on producibility so we can build kind of uh, scale um, and yeah. build um, uh, mass mm -hmm. um, in, in, a, in, a, in a more expeditious manner. Yeah, I, I, I like it because it's, it's, there's mass, scale, capacity, various different drones, you know, looking at air, sea, you know, land, right? Um, there's definitely changes in, in, in the character of war, you know, shifting over to, to drone drone warfare, as we see, you know, in, in, in Ukraine. Um, one of the things that I am, you know, a little nervous about is, you know, in our modernization efforts for the Army, right? You know, these different capabilities, but it's, you know, it's going to be, you know, a while for some of them to be available, right? And then, and then scale depth in there. And as you see in, in Ukraine, you know, you only have so many Patriot batteries, you only have so many, you know, Bradleys are out there and in an Alisco fight, you need, you need capacity, you need depth, right? So uh, I like it. I think it's a, it's a great initiative and you know, I'm really excited to see where, see where it goes. Uh, moving along to your thoughts on PPBE, sir. So there's a reform commission, you know, there's yeah. major criticisms about PPBE, you know, wh why a commission? Why, why now? What are your thoughts? Yeah. 
Uh, great question. Uh, yeah, so the, the PPP was started by Secretary, Secretary of Defense uh, Robert McNamara mm -hmm. in the 1960s. All right. Uh, he had come from uh, Ford. He was chairman and CEO of Ford Motor Company. And the very much the um, state of the art at that time was systems engineering and uh, was, you know, uh, planning for, um, you know, as far out as possible for uh, to build your budget, build your programs, build your, your um, systems. And so he wanted to bring that rigor and that uh, approach to uh, the department. Uh, and that was started, like I said, state of the art in the 1960s. That is no longer state-of-the-art thinking. That's not how companies do their planning and um, today. They use agile processes. They do agile development. Uh, different, you know, it's it's different budgeting. It's not waterfall planning. It's it's much more iterative and the like. So, um, um, so we have a system uh, for how we plan and program and budget and execute um, our, the Department of Defense. That you know it was it's very kind of dated and and um, and what it does is it requires you to determine you know uh, the the specific shape of a program two and a half years before execution. Mm -hmm. So you have to build up you know the budget you know well before you ever if it has passed submitted to Congress and like. So what you get is that um, you don't it's it, it's very inadaptable to change. It's hard to be flexible. Uh, and so when you have an emerging requirement, getting that into the to the budget and getting that in execution is really, really hard to do. And that and um, and that's been a recognition. And, you know, you've heard the term probably valley of death and mm -hmm. numbers of years. And, and, and that is the fundamental challenge with, um, you know, uh, budgeting and ex execution uh, is with regard to capabilities. And so the commission is all about you know, how do we do better? Wh why do we have this system? How do we get out of it? How do we make it more appropriate for today's world? Uh, it's a congressional commission and, um, you know, full disclosure, our center at George Mason is doing research for that commission. We have a, a, a couple of reports that uh, we, we've submitted to them uh, that will be eventually published. So um, uh, the, uh, the commission is going to have a, has had an interim report last summer mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to issue their final report in uh, on early March of, of this year. So. Um, you know, so we'll soon see what they recommend um, in terms of, uh, you know, capability development, uh, budgeting, and so on. And there's lots of ideas in that in the interim report that they'll likely to adapt to take further, uh, and then we'll see see where it goes. But um, uh, I think it's absolutely needed, um, and it, um, it, you know, whether or not it, you know, a lot of people like the current system. It gives you great predictability. Uh, it's very easy for Congress to fulfill its oversight functions. Uh, it's easy for the services, for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines to build their programs and, and monitor execution. Uh, it, just, it is just a hulking behemoth that is hard to uh, adapt. Um, it's hard to, you know, you know, get them, you know, to have the new capabilities come in. So that's the, the challenge. Uh, and it does not really fit for a lot of what we need to be doing to, to, um, in, in the future. So um so building more agility into it is really important yeah and with the uh the interim report out um you know what are what are some of the reforms that you think could be you know implemented today or tomorrow yeah so uh well a few of things um that um uh could be implemented that um are would be important is is more of a portfolio approach to how we do capability development because right now you sort of have 
thousands of individual program elements that are part of the budget. And like, and if you're moving within, moving um, between program elements, it requires um, uh, reprogramming, um, and which requires congressional notification. It just gets really, really challenging uh, for the department to, to do. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, some reforms around portfolio management, around um, um, levels of reprogramming authority um, that help build more kind of uh, agility into the system. I, I think you're likely to see some kind of those, those recommendations on sub-level come out of the commission. Yeah, yes, sir. In, in the uh, interim report, you know, it mentions, you know, we, it, you know, need to mitigate the problems caused by a CR, right? And we're on CR 3.0 right now. Um, I don't think there's like a total fix for PPBE unless, you know, you, you, you change the behavior in, in, in Congress. I mean, that's just, you know, just, just my thoughts yeah. on the budget process. Yeah. Right. yeah. So the whole, yes, the whole budgeting uh, so between, you know, you know, uh, you know, continuing resolutions on it, that is a real challenge, but you know, you know, to be fair to Congress, if the, if the president, if the administration doesn't put their, doesn't submit their budget on time, yeah. you know, um, and doesn't respond to their request for information in time. So, so it, it's not, uh, it's not all Congress. I mean, um, so it, but, but, but not having budgets done on time is, it, it just it compounds the problem, you know, times X, as you say, we're already six months into the fiscal year almost. I'm not six, I'm sorry. We're four months into the new fiscal year. It's just like, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was one there was one guest I had on the podcast and and she said really like to paraphrase there's there's really no fix. We just got to basically we got to burn the village in order to save it. Like we got to do a something completely brand brand new. Um yeah. All right, sir, like getting to the conclusion, get to my fun questions that I ask uh, you know, every guest regardless of of the topic. You know, we've covered a lot of ground. We talked about the defense industrial base, we we hit on acquisitions, we talked to PPBE. Um, but some of the uh the fun questions that I have, sir, is, you know, what is your all-time favorite book? Yeah, no, I looked at your paper and I was like, yeah, that's a great question. Um and I think, and I don't know, I'd have to say, you know, since, you know, you're a, a young major and uh, I was a young lieutenant and captain, I, I have to say my favorite book goes back to those days. And that was Killer Angels, you know, because mm. it really, yeah. it really brought to life the military art and, uh, you know, the dynamics in a, in, um, in a battle and uh, on both sides. And, uh, and uh, it was, you know, utterly, utterly fascinating. And, you know, just every time I go to Gettysburg or, Think about a, a military battle is you know you put yourself in that kind of those kind of shoes so all right awesome yeah i appreciate that and then kind of futuristic futurism here you know what emerging or future capability worries you the most i i think um i think i to, to kind of put a put it in the lens of our current conversation I, I think it's our lack of capacity is what scares me the most industrial capacity so, you know, if we do get into a no crap shooting war with a major power, you know, we're going to run out schlitz in like weeks, you know, and then what do we do? You know, just yeah. like, mm. you know, you know, um, yeah. it's not like we can, you know, I've read, I've read a lot on World War II mobilization. So we started that stuff in 39, right? You know, 30, you know, um, we didn't go to war of, you know, 41. So it's like, you know, we had a two year head start. Uh, if we go to war, you know, we're not going to, we don't have that kind of that time. So it's just, um, it, uh, that worries me a lot. 
yeah, no, that, that's music to my ears. That's, you know, one of my top worries too. And then, you know, reading what's coming out of these war games and then you're seeing what's unfolding in in Ukraine. We don't have the, the capacity, you know, we're in a world of trouble. Um, all right. Um, any, any advice, words of wisdom, anything for, you know, uh, you know, army staff officers, us force managers, sir. Um, and I, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for your service. Thanks for staying in and uh, serving our country. And, uh, you know, just keep, uh, keep reading and listening and doing things like you, you do um, to kind of grow in your profession and expand your perspective, you know, and the fact that, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, you're talking about industrial base in your field. Uh, that That's, that's, you know, that's kudos to you. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, just, so the more you can learn, the more you can better serve and uh, grow in your respective roles. So that's what I would say. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, the industrial base, it's it's important. There's a lot of, you know, strategic risk, right? And, you know, there's some national security concerns concerns with it. And I think the more that we keep advertising, we keep talking about it, I think the better off we're, you know, we're, we're going to be. Um, okay, any last words, any final comments before we uh, conclude? No, no, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for the invite. It's, uh, uh, it's great to great to meet you. All right. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. It was an awesome conversation. All right. Great. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of online discussions with senior force managers and subject matter experts on strategic readiness, the defense industrial base, and the all-volunteer force.